Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly, and tonight I'm joined by Debbie Hansen, outdoor writer, guide, and the driving force behind SheFishes2.com. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me, Marvin. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun chatting this evening. Uh, Before we get going, folks, just a couple housekeeping things. First, um, if you haven't yet, I would really appreciate it if you would give us a review and a rating in iTunes and subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. It helps us uh, in the rankings and it helps me with advertisers. And also, I want to give a shout out to tonight's sponsor, the First Fly Shop in Bryson City, North Carolina, Tuckasegee Fly Shop. They have two locations. They have one in Bryson City right there on Depot Street, and then they're also in Silva. You owe it to yourself to go by and visit Dale, Bobby, Shannon, and the Shop Dogs. To learn more about the shops, visit www.tuckflyshop.com. Well, Debbie, I always start with all of my guests. It's sort of an articulate fly tradition to ask you to share your earliest fishing memory. Oh, my goodness. And it's a, it's a good one. I was five years old. And my grandparents had a cottage in the upper peninsula of Michigan on a lake called Stanley Lake. That was a glacial lake that was about 310 acres. And my earliest memory was fishing off my grandfather's pier there for bluegill and yellow perch and making memories with him. That's fantastic. That sounds like that was probably uh, cane poles and probably worms and crickets. (laughs) <laughs> not necessarily a cane pole, but it was probably a Zebco Snoopy rod and reel combo. Yes. Our old, I remember yes, our old, yeah. <laughs> our, our old friend, the Zebco 33. Um, yeah. so when, so when did you make the move to the dark side of fly fishing? The, I, that's been relatively recent. So about seven years ago, I started dabbling in fly fishing a little bit. Thanks to my good friend, Mr. Joe Mahler, who has also been a fantastic mentor to me. And, um, you know, I started dabbling in it about seven years ago, but then five years ago, I got really serious about it and put down my spinning rods and reels for six months and just focused exclusively on improving my casting and getting into a little bit of fly tying and the rest was kind of history. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's pretty neat. And so today kind of what's the proportion of kind of conventional tackle fly tackle, uh, in your, in your fishing year? I would say, um, and it depends cause you know, I, I guide and, and primarily my focus when I'm guiding is I do a lot of finesse fishing and then fly fishing and, and it's probably about 50, 50. So, um, when I'm taking other people out and it's generally about the same when I'm fishing myself. So, you know, I'm definitely not what a lot of people would refer to as a purist, but, (laughs) um, it's, it's certainly something that I truly enjoy just because it's so much about the entire process and not just about the end result. Well, that's great. And you mentioned Joe, how did you meet Joe? I met Joe when I first moved down to Florida, and this was probably around 2003, 2004. Um, Joe and I, I was working in the advertising industry at that time, and Joe was an illustrator in the advertising world on top of having a passion for fishing and for fly fishing in particular. 
And so we met at a small little agency here in Fort Myers, and he knew I loved, you know, fishing and talked a lot about my grandfather and his influence and my fishing past. And so he, um, you know, he had mentioned to me a few times, oh, well, what do you think about fly fishing? Maybe you should try fly fishing. And and um, to be honest, it took me quite a few years before I was ready to to give it a go and and try it out. But um, yeah, we met, wow, going back, like I said, 2003. So that's uh, quite a bit of time. Oh, ab- going on two decades. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Any, any folks in addition to Joe that really kind of helped you as you got into the fly fishing game? I would say, you know, I mean, Joe primarily. Um, I've had a few other mentors along the way. I mean, my husband, certainly Captain Greg Stamper, he's been a huge encouragement in terms of my career and getting me more involved in the sport and with guiding in particular. Um, Dan Blanton, who lives out in California and does a lot of striper fly fishing for striped bass. Um, He's been a very big source of encouragement and inspiration from a fly fishing perspective and has sent me you know, some of his whistlers that he um, created and tied, and he was also an outdoor writer. So he's been an inspiration to me in that respect. But yeah, primarily, I would say, you know, Joe and Dan have been two of the big ones. Well, that's great. And you mentioned outdoor writing. When did you get the outdoor writing bug? You know, I've always really enjoyed writing, Marvin. I, I actually, one of the few that graduated with a degree in English and journalism, So I've always really loved reading and writing. And when I graduated from college, I ended up getting um, a job in the advertising world thinking that, well, maybe I'll get into copywriting and I'll apply my education that way. Um, But given my love for the outdoors and my love of fishing in particular, as a result of the time I spent with my grandfather when I was young, you know, that was always there and it was always kind of in the background. And it was right around, I would say, 2003 after I moved down to Florida and I started getting more involved in saltwater fishing that, you know, there were a lot more opportunities, I think, down here just because Florida really is a fishing mecca, so to speak. We've got so many wonderful opportunities from both a saltwater and freshwater perspective that um, there were just a lot more opportunities with different magazines and publications at that time that presented themselves. So, um, so yeah, it was right around 2003 when, when I wrote my first article for a magazine called times of the islands and it was called, um, ladies are fishing and it actually came out in July of 2003. Wow. And was that your first paid writing assignment or did you do that one just for the exposure? Nope. That was my first paid assignment. Awesome. And in turn, and in terms of writing influences, are your influences other outdoor writers or are they kind of, I guess what we consider more traditional literary, um, sources from your, your college background? I would say, you know, a lot of my writing influences are fellow outdoor writers. I mean, um, from a saltwater perspective, I know when I first moved down to Florida and anytime I wanted to research something, it, it seemed like George Poveromo's name always came up and he's definitely been a huge, a huge influence 
I reference a lot of his art online articles and the articles that he writes for Saltwater Sportsman magazine. So he's been a big influence. Ron Presley, who wrote the book Florida's Master Anglers, he's been another big influence. Drew Chacone, um, who a wonderful fly angler down here in Florida, um, also runs Salty Fly Tying, an amazing saltwater fly tire. He has put out a series of books. He's been a huge influence and inspiration. And then um, I'd also say, you know, my good friend Alberto Nee. He's a um, actually a saltwater surf caster, but he's also written quite a few online and magazine articles and has has also been somewhat of a, a mentor to me as well. So, yeah, lots of um, lots of amazing outdoor writers out there that I've had the opportunity to learn from and and uh, to read their material. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you mentioned Drew. I think it, there's probably not an issue of fly tire that comes out that he doesn't have an article in. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Um, but, uh, and so in terms of getting ideas, um, where do your article ideas come from? Is it from your kind of guide days or do they come from somewhere else? You know, Marvin, a lot of my ideas sort of come from questions that I hear being asked a lot. Um, you know, whether it's it, sometimes they're questions that I have or they're questions that I hear people ask on a frequent basis. And I think, you know, this would be a really good subject matter for an article because people wonder about it. Um, you know, for example, I hear a lot when people are first getting into fly fishing you know, how do I know which fly line to use? And, you know, um, do I need a floating line? Do I need an intermediate line? Do I need a sinking line? And and so a lot of times when I hear those questions, it inspires me to, you know, put together a blog post or an article based on those questions and, and really develop content based around, I think, some of the uh, the more popular or most frequently asked questions that people have. Um, you know, because I think a lot of times things can seem a little confusing or complex, but really, if you if you break them down, they can be simplified and and it can be provided to people in a much more easier easier digestible manner, so to speak. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I think you know, as an industry, I don't think we do a great job of helping people understand why they're doing what they're doing, and it makes it really hard for people to kind of get traction in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people like to feel empowered to go online and, you know, do the research on their own. And if they can find something that's helpful for them in terms of reference material that they can go back and, and look at, or, you know, find something that's inspiring. Um, Cause I think, you know, no matter how much experience you have or don't have, you know, we all started somewhere in the fishing world and, you know, we all have questions and there's, always more we can know about fishing. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. It's just seriously a lifelong learning process. Yeah. I keep buying bookcases. Um, the, um, it, it's funny too, cause I, I always ask all of my, uh, author guests to, to share how they like to write in terms of, you know, do you write a little bit every day or do you kind of block off chunks of time to write a bunch of articles or blog posts? Um, how do you like to, uh, to make the writing thing happen? I, um, I, I, 
I do it pretty frequently because I do a weekly blog post and um, help with some website content for takemefishing.org. So I, I generally three to four times a week and I like to do it pretty frequently in the evenings just because, you know, a lot of times I'm on the water in the mornings. I get off the water at maybe noon. By the time I get the boat put away and everything, it's one o'clock and then, yeah, come home, relax a little bit, have dinner. And then evening is just, I usually have a few hours of, of relaxing, quiet time to just sort through my thoughts and put them down on paper on computer i should say <laughs> yeah absolutely um well that's a that's a pretty prolific writing schedule i mean i've tried that before and i mean writing multiple blog posts a week uh is a major time commitment yeah it definitely it can keep you busy that's for sure and um it, but like i said i mean it's it's definitely something i i really enjoy and i think that um you know with a lot of things if you're writing from the heart and you're writing about something you love about the words tend to flow. So. No, very true. And I mean, in addition to being an outdoor writer, um, you're also a fishing guide. When did you decide that you wanted to uh, go down that career path? <laughs> that was, um, that's a really, really good question. It was about four years ago. I, um, I started doing some volunteer work. I mean, I was doing the outdoor writing thing and, um, enjoying that, but, you know, I felt like I wanted to keep expanding on what I was doing with She Fishes too. And I think that, you know, a lot of times women feel comfortable asking other women questions and it's just the way that we sometimes have a relating to each other. So I thought, well, you know what, whether it's getting couples on the water, women on the water, guys on the water, like I, I really enjoy it. And I was volunteering for an organization called the Freedom Waters Foundation down in Naples. And they have a program called the Heels and Reels um, Girls Fishing Event that they do every month, or I should say every year. They take a group of um, teenage girls at risk out on the water and they pair them up with experienced female anglers. And, you know, that experience was probably one of the most impactful experiences I had in terms of, you know, really wanting to share my passion for fishing with other people. Um, just to see a lot of those girls get on the water, you know, they're, they were anywhere from, you know, 12 to 16, 17 years old. And to see them get on the water in the morning and be a little reluctant, hesitant, not sure what to expect. You know, a lot of them had never been fishing before, um, or much less been to the beach. So to see them get on the boat in the morning you know, a little unsure, but then as the day progressed, just seeing their confidence increase with every cast and every catch, it really, it was a really, really powerful, powerful experience. And I think that's what made me realize that, you know, I want to share this with other people and I get just as much joy out of seeing somebody else, you know, land their first of a species or get their, you know, next personal best fish. and and I love just helping educate people about, you know, the fisheries that we have here. So, um, you know, and the importance of preserving them and conserving them. So I think that's to make a long story short, uh, <laughs> but what really inspired me to get into guiding was to continue to continue to share those experiences with others. Now it makes a lot of sense. And 
do you have the do you have the same mentors in your guiding career or do you have a different set of folks that are influencing you? The same mentors in terms of well, um, like Joe and mentors I've had outdoor writing. Yeah, I mean Joe has really been one of the key and instrumental um, mentors in terms of you know my guiding career. I would also say um, a gentleman by the name of Captain Cody Pierce. He started guiding right around the same time that I did. And while you know he may not be a mentor per se, he's definitely been a great. Like we've been able to just support each other because we're kind of in the same going through the same things at the same times. And, and, um, he does the saltwater, you know, fly fishing side of things and I do the freshwater. So it's just, it's just been really nice to have someone like that who kind of understands, you know, what you're going through and, you know, you're, you're learning about, you know, the fisheries, you're learning about, you know, what's best to do from business perspective. And it's always good to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. No, absolutely. And, you know, for folks that don't know, you're located in Southwest Florida. And as you mentioned, you guide on, guide on the freshwater. Where do you normally guide folks? So a a series of small lakes and canal systems here in Southwest Florida. Um, One of the lakes I fish is Lake Babcock up in Charlotte County. But then based on the client's desired experience and the target species, there are a few other waterways that I fish. So um, I've got, you know, a spot down in in Naples. Um, So it's a little bit varied, but I alternate between about three different locations. Well, that's great. And uh, just to let give folks a feel, um, you know, what's it like to spend a day on the water with Debbie Hansen? <laughs> Fun is number one. Um, you know, it, it's just a nice, relaxing experience on the water where you can learn more about fishing, about the fisheries, um, catch fish, and, you know, just have a really nice relaxing and an awesome day out in nature and have the opportunity to decompress. No, that's, that sounds great. And, you know, obviously being in Florida, you have a much longer fishing season than so many other places in the country. How many days do you end up guiding a year? It's really right around about 200. Wow. So between, yeah. Between, um, you know, the, the writing stuff and, and the guiding, it's definitely, it's keeping me busy. Yeah, <laughs> And I do quite a bit of seminars too. So, um, you know, we have several local fishing clubs here. The different gated communities have a lot of, um, you know, fishing clubs that during our season, which generally starts in January and runs through Easter, which is usually, you know, right around April. Um, that's kind of like our prime time down here when we're the busiest. And also from a freshwater perspective, it's, you know, generally when we've got some of the best fishing for our Florida strain largemouth bass. So, um, the, the prime time and the busiest time is usually January through Easter. Got it. And obviously a lot of our listeners are familiar with largemouth bass and sunfish, but you have plenty of other things to target in Southwest Florida. Can you share some of those with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. We, we have, um, you know, the, the one thing about Florida and, you know, everyone has, has their different opinions and views on this, but, you know, we have some exotic species here, which 
while they may not be non-native to Southwest Florida, they still present a wonderful opportunity, particularly for, you know, beginner fly anglers to get out and experience, you know, a fantastic day of fishing. We have the Mayan cichlids, which are also referred to as their nickname is the atomic sunfish. And they are native to Mexico and Nicaragua, but they've made their way, you know, from the Miami area over to this side. And they're as far north as Lake Okeechobee. And they're a wonderful, hard-fighting fish, and they readily take flies. So that's actually one of my favorite species um, on fly. And they'll take, you know, poppers or small minnow patterns. Um, We also have some peacock bass down in the Naples area. And while they're not um, as prominent here in Southwest Florida as they are in Miami, the Fort Lauderdale area. We do have a population here, and those are obviously another just amazing, hard-fighting species, beautiful, colorful, um, and they really serve a wonderful purpose here in our ecosystem. You know, they were brought into the canal systems in, in Dade and Miami-Dade and Broward County in the 1980s. Um, And the species has made its way over to this coast, but they are important in the reason that FWC brought them to the state of Florida to help control a lot of the other invasive species. So our peacock bass is very aggressive and preys on a lot of the the other non-natives. Obviously, you know, given the fact that we're here in Florida, our climate is very conducive that if somebody were to release a fish from a tropical fish aquarium, you know, they, they don't have too much of a problem um, continuing to breed. So peacock bass are important for that reason. And they're also a great fishing opportunity. Um, and same thing with, we have um, a species called the Oscar, which is native to South America and, um, also likely an aquaculture release here in the state of Florida, but they're another great species to catch on fly. Well, that's, uh, that's really neat. And obviously, you know, there's, uh, you know, Florida's very warm, probably doesn't really have a fall season. So it kind of, I guess, messes with what I guess non-Floridian anglers think about from a, what the approach to freshwater angling. Can you kind of share with us how it's different to fish, for example, for largemouth bass in Florida than it is to fish for them, say, in the mid-Atlantic or in the upper Midwest? Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a great question. So, you know, the thing that a lot of people don't realize, and, and I'm really glad you brought this up because I actually do a lot of um, presentations on the subject, is that, you know, the, the Florida strain largemouth is it's a subspecies of, of largemouth bass. And we've got the Florida strain. And then, for example, if you're up in Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, anywhere up north, that's the northern strain largemouth. And they actually have different characteristics from a, you know, well, you may not be able to easily identify them, you know, a northern strain from a Florida strain by looking at them their behavior is very different and they actually react very different to um, environmental changes. So obviously our Florida strain largemouth is very susceptible to any type of um, significant temperature changes. So when we get a significant cold front down here, a lot of times, you know, that'll make the bite a lot more challenging. Um, Our Florida strain largemouth grows, tends to grow larger and faster 
So our fish don't tend to live quite as long because they grow faster, but they, they do grow much larger. Um, and, it, and it's really pretty interesting because central Florida, um, you know, if you go back and, and do some research, we actually have a, a state, one of the state fish hatcheries here is also, um, they have a visitor center and that's home to the Florida Bass Conservation Center where they will educate people on the Lake Wales Ridge here in Florida, which is where the Florida strain largemouth bass pretty much originated. Um, there was a particular piece of land was that was the only piece of land that was above um, ice and or water during the ice age. And so the Florida strain bass evolved on that ridge. And that region still tends to be one of the best places to catch large trophy bass. Um, and yeah, like I said, I mean, they, they just, they tend to be more finicky than the Northern strain. So they're more of a challenge to catch and they generally, you know, we, we get them up to, you know, it's really not uncommon to catch a trophy in the eight to 10 pound range if you're fishing in the right places here. Wow. And, and do you see those same behavioral differences, say, for example, in sunfish that are in Florida uh, compared to sunfish in other places in the country? Or is that a, unique to the Florida largemouth bass? Um, you know, I, as far as the sunfish, I don't target those quite as often. So I'm not, you know, not as familiar. I mean, I know that we do have the red ear sunfish down here that gets, they can get pretty large. In fact, I had a client catch one that was you know, about 12 inches this past season, which it, it was eligible for the, um, we have a program called the Florida big catch program. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that our red ear sunfish down here do tend to get pretty big too, depending on which fishery, but as far as behavior, um, like I said, I don't target them quite as often as I do large mouse. So I wouldn't be able to speak to that quite as well as I would on the largemouth bass. Got it. And, you know, obviously we can't really talk about Florida without talking about some of the challenges of kind of balancing development with the Everglades and the Florida estuaries. Um, I know it's a huge issue, um, but, you know, for, for my listeners that aren't familiar, can you kind of briefly kind of lay out kind of what the issues are and um, why they should care about them, even if they don't live and fish in Florida? Yeah, absolutely. So, here in Florida, we right now we have three estuary systems that are in peril, and you know it's it's basically the Caloosahatchee River, the St. Lucie River, and then Florida Bay. And you know there has just been traditionally, you know, going back to when the Army Corps of Engineers connected. Lake Okeechobee to the Clusatchee and the St. Lucie River, um, you know, during our rainy season, though Lake Okeechobee is artificially connected to those, those two river systems. And when we get periods of heavy rainfall, billions of nutrient and sediment laden freshwater is discharged into these rivers. And then that water comes out on either side of the state of Florida. So what does that mean? Well, it basically means that 
you know, those estuary systems are getting an excessive amount of fresh water and then whatever else might be, of course, um, you know, coming, flushing out from the lake. And in an estuary, as we all know, there's a fine balance in that ecosystem. So during our rainy season, when we get those excessive amounts of fresh water that are coming into the estuaries, it does start to create issues with our seagrass, our oysters, and other marine life. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you know, our river of grass, the Everglades, serves a very important purpose. And that, you know, originally was to filter the water as it started flowing south down through the state to Florida Bay. Well, Florida Bay is now seeing hyper salinity levels because they are seeing a lack of fresh water in Florida Bay. And on the flip side, the hyper salinity in Florida Bay is also causing seagrass um, to die off due to that hyper salinity. So, you know, it, it's really a domino effect and it, it, water, you know, better managing our, our water is such an important issue here for us. And yeah, whether you live here, you recreate here or you live somewhere else, you know, there's, there's an impact for sure, because, you know, regardless our, our waters here, everything feeds off of, you know, I mean, if we don't have seagrass, then we don't have fish and we start to see water quality issues that affect our beaches. So even if you're not fishing, if you go to the beach and it's during our rainy season, you know, the water can, we can have a lot of water quality issues and, um, you know, challenges with red tide and excessive levels of red tide. And um, it just, it, it's important. I mean, our tourism here in the state of Florida is a huge part of our economy. And, you know, people come to Florida for, for the water. They come to enjoy the beaches. They come to fish. They come to recreate. And, you know, we just, regardless of if we fish or we don't fish, it's so important for us to take care of our environment and the ecosystems here. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some organizations that are kind of the boots on the ground that are kind of working on these issues in Florida? I mean, I'm familiar with Captains for Clean Water, but are there some other ones? Yeah, I was just going to say Captains for Clean Water is is a, a big one. They They do so much to, you know, help educate the community and to help really the community have their voice be heard in terms of our state legislators and even going up to DC and making our voices heard. Um, the Everglades foundation is another one. So I know their website is evergladesfoundation.org. Um, here in Southwest Florida, we have another organization called another nonprofit called Calusa waterkeeper. That's more localized to just Southwest Florida. Um, you know, the important thing is just really to educate, you know, anyone that comes to Florida that enjoys fishing here, educate yourself on the issues. I mean, even if you don't, you know, our, all of our fisheries are, you know, they're such important pieces of, of our country. And if we don't take care of them, the next generation's not going to be able to get out on the water and fish and enjoy 
all of the wonderful memories and experiences that we've all had. Um, but yeah, I mean, people just need to educate themselves on the issues, contact your elected officials, voice your opinion and, you know, j- just get the word out and make sure that, you know, you're, you're staying involved. Well, I really appreciate it. And I'll drop links to all of those organizations in the show notes so people can uh, easily find them and contact them and even better uh, get involved and donate money. Um, before, uh, before we uh, move on and one question I ask all of my guide guests, Debbie, is to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide. <laughs> I would say the biggest misconception is that it's easy. Um, you know, I cannot tell you how often I'll have, you know, people come on the boat and they say, Oh man, I really wish I had your job. It's so easy. All I have to do is take people out and go fish. <laughs> and while it is truly something that I'm passionate about and something that I enjoy, I know that every single guide out there will tell you that, you know, for every half day or full day trip they make, they're putting in at least that time in research in gear prep in boat maintenance and yeah, in scouting. So you know, yeah, I mean, basically for every four hours I'm spending on the water, I'm spending at minimum an additional four hours in, in preparation on some level. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not always easy. It's not, in fact, most times it's not easy. And, um, it, it, it really does involve you, you know, it, it requires you to put a lot of, um, additional time into it. And, you know, despite what the conditions are, you know, if, if people come down and they've got a trip planned and, you know, they really want to go out on the water, you want to do your best to give them the very best possible experience, regardless of, you know, the time of year. And, and that means doing your research. Yeah. And I think people really don't appreciate like, you know, when, when a guide has the number of guide days that you have, I I think most people don't really understand what a physical and mental grind that is, you know, to you're on day 185 and you want to be as happy on day 185 as you were on day one. Um, that's, that's hard. Um, I, I would think. It can, it can be, I mean, you know, you want everybody to come on your boat or, you know, if you're, even if you're guiding from shore or, you know, regardless, you want everybody to have that same level of enthusiasm that, you know, you offer the next person. You want to be just as upbeat and have just as much fun. Um, You know, that's what it really comes down to is, you know, you as a guide, you're really there to, yes, help educate people, to put them on fish, but also to give them the very best possible experience and, and entertain them along the way. Cause you know, they're, they're spending the day with you and they want to have a memorable experience and that's what keeps them coming back. Hopefully, you know, as repeat clients in the future and, um, you know, no, a- absolutely. Just gotta, yep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, and I know Debbie that you have been, and you continue to be an outspoken advocate, uh, for women anglers. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how the industry is doing, growing female participation in the sports and any thoughts about what you think the industry as a whole could do better. 
Yeah, another really great question. I think the industry is doing so much better, especially I've seen some huge strides over the past two years. And and I think in large part, you know, a lot of that um, is due to organizations such as the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. They do a lot of research and, and studies and surveys to try to find out, you know, where where the participation is growing primarily and you know if it's not growing in a particular area or we're not we're not retaining anglers in a particular area you know what can we be doing better and the recreational boating and fishing foundation just recently launched a women making ways initiative um over the past year which has been huge because they found that you know, while 45% of new fishing participants are female, only 19% of women see themselves in the sport of fishing. And, you know, that means whether it be they're at, you know, their local fly shop or they're at a, you know, fishing seminar, they're not seeing themselves represented in, in ads. They're not seeing themselves you know, they're not seeing other women like them up on the seminar stage providing information. They're not seeing as many female fishing guides. So, you know, what organizations I think have started to do a much better job of is, you know, start to include, you know, more of these women guides because, you know, they're out there and they've been out there for a long time. So um, I think it's just, you know, making the sport more all-inclusive, making it more welcoming, and, um, you know, really, it's it's just um, encouraging, encouraging people to get involved and making it not intimidating for newcomers to feel like they're welcome. It's it's rolling out the welcome mat. Yeah, <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. And, and you know, and if you're an event organizer, and I mean that in a pretty broad sense, whether you are an officer in your local fishing club, or you know, you're at a fly shop and you're in charge of event promotion, or you're a fly fishing show or festival promoter, you know, what are some suggestions that you can give those folks to help them have? a more inclusive event, really not just to be more inclusive of female anglers, but to be really more inclusive of everyone who's interested in angling. I think by, you know, like spreading the word, if regardless of, you know, who you meet, like, for example, I know a lot of, I've had a lot of husband and wife, um, you know, couples come aboard and book me for guided trips lately. And I think, you know, a lot of times, the wise just, someone just needs to let them know that, Hey, you're welcome to come too. And just, yeah, extend the invite to, to, to both, both parties and encourage, you know, more just kids overall to get involved in fishing, whether it's, you know, young ladies, you know, young men, it, it really, it really shouldn't be about that. I think that, um, it's just making it more all-inclusive and encouraging them to come and finding certain forms. I mean, I know that there's a lot of um, organizations out there, like there's United Women on the Fly. Um, There are, you know, a lot, there's like here in Florida, Betty Bowman runs Ladies Let's Go Fishing and she tours all over the state of Florida and gets 
you know, has seminars exclusively for women. So I think, you know, it's, it's just from an event standpoint, yeah, just letting, you know, women know they're welcome and communicating that in your marketing messages, you know, just showing both men and women and again, rolling out that welcome mat. <laughs> sure. And, and to turn the question around, if you're a, you're, if you're a female person who's interested in being an angler, what would you suggest to them to break into the sport? I would say, you know, find, find a, a seminar, um, you know, for example, like the Virginia fly fishing festival is, is a wonderful example. Um, the fly, the fly fishing and wine festival that's going to be held up in January and, um, in Virginia, it, that's a perfect opportunity to, you know, come to the festival, you get introduced to fly fishing. If you don't have experience, you get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about it. You get to taste a few Virginia wines while you're there. You know, there's a lot of seminars and casting classes that are held there. You can connect with people who are learning just like yourself to be of support. And I think really, you know, that's what it comes down to. Anyone can go, you know, going to the event is the the first part of it. But I think, you know, the other part of it is how can we all do a better job? Like after that initial touch point, whether you're a fly shop owner or you're running a festival, you know, fly fishing festival, like how can we continue to support people in their learning process or in their, you know, fly fishing journey along the way? Because I think specifically, you know, for, in my case, and for, I think for a lot of women or newcomers to the sport, you know, they get started, they go to maybe one event and then they're not sure if they don't have a mentor or someone around them who fly fishes on a regular basis, you know, they kind of need to know where to go for that next step or where can I go, you know, next week or next month so that I can keep building on my skills or maybe get out there on the water with someone um, until I feel more comfortable going on my own. So, um, you know, I think, I think in addition to having those opportunities like the fly fishing festivals and the seminars, you know, my hope is that more places will start to offer um, classes and seminars on an ongoing regular basis, you know, be it once a month or, you know, once every couple of weeks where people can feel like they can continue to go and build on their skills and feel supported and encouraged along the way. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're TU and federation clubs are great places, right? And, you know, and then there are some fly shops that are more active than other ones offering exactly that kind of programming. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and I know like our local Bass Pro shops here, um, you know, Joe does a monthly fly casting clinic. I'm going to start some women's fishing seminars there once a month. So there are, you know, a lot of resources that are out there and available. If you listen to podcasts like yours, Marvin, um, you know, I know that people can get ideas on where to go, where to find those resources and where to get plugged in. No, absolutely. And that's a great segue because I was going to ask you to share any of your upcoming events and appearances with us. Yeah, so um, I have, I will be speaking at the Florida Outdoor Writers Association. We have a conference coming up 
in September. Um, that's actually going to be Saturday, September 21st. We have a professional development day where I'll be speaking. Um, and it's open to the public. While the conference itself is for outdoor writers, the professional development day is open to the general public. So anyone can go. And um, I'll be speaking that day for anyone who wants more information on that particular event. You can just go to the uh, Florida Outdoor Writers Association website, and I will provide that after our call today. And um, yeah, and then like I said, I, I will be doing regular seminars up at Bass Pro Shops, dates to be announced, um, but it will be here in the Fort Myers area at our local Bass Pro Shops, and it will be geared towards women and fishing overall, fly fishing and um, traditional spinning tackle. Well, that's great. And I will drop the link to the shop in the show notes too. And uh, before I let you go, where can folks find you on the internet so they can uh, either uh, ask you to write something for their magazine or blog or book you to fish? Absolutely. So um, on Facebook, it's just Facebook forward slash she fishes and the number two my website is shefishes2, that's the number two dot com. And then also on Instagram, and I'm, I'm on Instagram at, at shefishes2. And then um, last but not least, on Twitter at shefishes2 as well. So any of those social media channels and my website are perfect. Great. And I'll drop all those in the show notes. Well, Debbie, I really appreciate you uh, carving some time out between probably fishing today and writing articles later tonight to chat with me. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Marvin. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast today and wishing you lots of luck in the future. And um, hopefully we'll get to meet in person one of these days soon. A absolutely. And folks, uh, thanks again to tonight's sponsor, the Tuckasegee Fly Shop. Don't forget to go check out www.tuckflyshop.com. And um, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did, I would really appreciate it if you would give me a review on iTunes and subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Tight lines, Debbie. <laughs>